Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode four of season nine. In today's episode, you speak to a doctor. I do. Dr. Dr. Kate Litterer is my guest today and such a wonderful guest. Um, This conversation is one that I've reflected on a lot over the last few weeks since I recorded it um, and I'm really excited to share it. So why did you invite Kate onto the podcast? So Kate is a, um, she's a productivity coach and she focuses her work on slow living, slow productivity, um, sustainable productivity and what she calls well-being oriented productivity. I feel like that is something that is absolutely timely and relevant for all of us at the moment, because I think there is this sort of overwhelming sense of um, exhaustion and maybe confusion mixed with optimism, mixed with pessimism about how the world could have and hasn't and has and might shift in a work-related sort of sense as a result of the last couple of years. Uh, And Kate's got so many incredible insights into the things that we as individuals can do to change the way that we work. Uh, And importantly, that applies to both people like me and you and Kate who are self-employed, but also to people who are not, people who don't have the flexibility to work from home, to shift their hours, to, um, you know, kind of rewrite the rules of their workplace. Yeah. Um, We we really kind of dig into that in the conversation. It's something that's uh, happening like in real time, like the, uh, the Sydney is just sort of businesses have just opened up mm. like in the city and they're encouraging people to come back into the city. But there's a whole, I think the large majority of people are like, no, yeah, like, we don't want to. Yeah. You can't kind, of, kind of ignore the last two years. No, that's right. <laughs> and, and the I- habits and stuff that have been developed. And I think that being two years, you know, give or take a few months here or there, it's long enough time for people to have made fundamental shifts in the way that they view themselves as Mm. part of a workplace and the way that they view work as part of their lives. Yeah. You know, um, so I think it's going to be really fascinating and probably messy, you Mm. know, as all of these, these shifts are and will be. But I just love that... Kate's work really focuses on um, the idea of well-being being at the center of productivity as opposed to kind of the capitalist version of productivity, which is... How much can be done in a day. Exactly. Mm. At what cost, you know. Mm. And the thing that I find really interesting in this chat is that Kate also views um, her work through two lenses, which I find fascinating. One is the academic kind of side of things. So she has studied extensively uh, and works a lot with undergraduate students about how they can develop tools and, um, you know, ways of working and studying that are well-being oriented. But also she views her work through the lens of someone living with a chronic illness. Mm. And that has been unintentionally a thread that has kind of woven its way through this season of the podcast so far. Uh, and I think that it's becoming more and more relevant to to people as we're all dealing with the fallout of extraordinary amounts of stress. And, you know, you look at what's happening in 
you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the moment. And, um, you know, in Australia, we've got horrible, catastrophic floods and, you know, like there's heaviness everywhere. Mm. So people are living with the impact of chronic stress, which can often lead to chronic illness. You know, so I think that there's probably going to be something in this conversation for everyone listening. I agree. I agree. Now, before we get into the conversation, you wanted to talk a little bit about and celebrate International Women's Day, which is coming up next, I do. next week. Next week, as yes. As we're recording. Yeah, that's right. So if you're listening to this as it comes out, there's a few days before International Women's Day 2022. And one of the things that I was proudest of last year was that I came on board as an ambassador for Care Australia. Um, the nonprofit organisation Care Australia, who focuses their work on empowering women and helping women around the world to move out of and you know defeat poverty. And this year for International Women's Day, they've created a campaign that is all about understanding what happens when one woman is empowered and supported out of poverty. And what they've found is that one single woman, if she is able to escape poverty, brings with her four more people from her circle. Mm. So that might be her children, it might be family, it could be co-workers, it could be friends. Wow. But one woman brings four other people with her when she escapes poverty. Is that a study that they've done? Yeah. International study? Yeah. Wow. Uh, And to me, that is one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard about the importance of supporting and empowering women is that, yes, of course, it's a women's rights issue. It is a human rights issue. It's also the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's also really smart <laughs> because you are going to be, be, you are going to see women bringing others with them. And we're going to see this huge impact of the work that CARE as an organization does, but that also communities do, you know, that we can do as individuals. Um, so, this is not necessarily a call out for fundraising or anything like that. It is more about building awareness mm. of what happens when we support women. What happens is that we support entire communities. So I'd really encourage you to take a look today at the Care Australia website. And this is applicable to you if you live in Australia, obviously, but also our international listeners. So go to care.org.au slash her dash circle. <laughs> I will include wow. a link to that in the show notes, but Care Australia is doing phenomenal work at the moment and I'm really proud to be able to um, you know, partner with them and spread awareness for this campaign that they're creating because I really believe that supporting women is the solution to defeating poverty worldwide. So go and check out care.org.au or head to the show notes of this episode at slowyourhome.com slash season nine. And you will find the link there as well. You will also find the link to Dr. Kate's website, attendingyear.com. And you can find her on Instagram at thetendingyear as well. Kate has written a book. She's got hundreds of blog posts that, uh, that are related to this topic of slow productivity mm-hmm. that I would really encourage you to check out because it is, her work is full of practical solutions and applications. So definitely check out Kate's website as well. Um, after you listen to this episode. Or during. Or during, I guess, if you're a multitasker. You know, if you but... like multitasking, correct. <laughs> a lot of information there. <laughs> do, do enjoy the episode and uh, thanks for listening.
Kate, hello. How are you? Hi, Brooke. I'm doing great. Um, as I was just saying, it's snowing outside here. <laughs> that sounds so delightful. So where is here for you? I am right outside of Boston in Massachusetts in the U.S. I absolutely loved Boston when we drove through. We went to a Red Sox game. <laughs> I, felt, I felt very authentic <laughs> for a minute with my hat on. Um, no, I love the part of the world that you live in. It's just gorgeous. Um, plus covered in snow. Yes, please. Yeah, so it's pretty dreamy. I lived in Western Mass for 10 years and it was very like crunchy, hippie, lots of colleges. It was really lovely. And I moved here because my partner has a job here. So I moved here right before um, COVID. So I didn't really get to explore anything. I've just sort of been working from home since then, but it's right. fine. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting time to, to move. Okay, so I, I have to stop myself from going off on a tangent right there, but um, I'd really like to get into it straight away with you because I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, now, you are someone who works in the sphere of slow productivity, intentional productivity, and I want to start by asking you whether or not you have always been someone who has understood the idea of slowness and intention in life or if you've kind of had to learn about it over time. Ooh, so I definitely have not always had slowness in my life. I had, a, I, and I feel like this is a common theme for many people who research productivity is that I um, first reevaluated like my approach to how quick and fast and efficient I was going when I developed chronic pain and chronic illness in 2017. And I was doing my PhD and I was working, I hit a wall where I was like, oh, holy crap, I have such severe sudden pain in my back. I can't sit for longer than an hour. So I really had to acknowledge that I was like, oh, I, this is not sustainable. I'm not going to not only be able to finish my PhD, but like my quality of life totally sucks right now. So at that point, I had to do a huge reevaluation of how I approached literally sitting at a desk, like mm -hmm. starting there. And that is what led me down the path of learning about productivity and personal development. And that led me to learning about slow living and a slow and intentional approach. And that sort of was like shifted my whole career. Everything changed at that point for me when I started reevaluating things through that lens. But yeah, I definitely up until that point had like many people, you know, just valued my worth based on my productivity and my academic accolades, things like that. So I'm not sure that I would have evaluated it until I had like that health crisis, mm. that change that forced me to intentionally slow down, or I was going to just like burn out entirely. Yeah. I do think that that, um, I mean, the, the crisis point, the pinch point looks different for everyone, but I find that so many people that I speak to both on the podcast, but just in general, uh, it's almost as though we have to reach that point before we start to reevaluate um, the way that we do things. But what I love about you and the progression that you have made is that you now help people to hopefully work those sorts of slow productivity, intentional productivity elements into their lives before they reach that burnout. So if someone listening, uh, they're like, okay, what is slow productivity? Because the two words don't seem to go together. What does it mean to you? For me, slow productivity, it's like the, the Venn diagram overlap of 
slow living practices, like slow, intentional, mindful, sustainable, you know, aiming to do less quality over quantity. For me, that's what I bring from slow living. And then the overlap with productivity of like time management, focus, um, you know, like habit formation, what happens in that Venn diagram overlap. And Mm. for me, using that lens, that helped me to think of like, okay, boundaries around my availability. Um, How can I respect my personal resources of time, energy, focus, things like that? How can I put blank space into my day? So it's sort of like do practicing productivity with the lens of slow living and intentionality over top of it. Like I'm Mm. imagining like literally like how do I look at my productivity through slow living, which really does line up with my personal values, my personal interests. Immediately you see that those two things are culturally are at, there's a huge amount of tension between them. So I know for myself and I imagine for you and other people, there's a lot of kind of unlearning that needs to happen around uh, extricating our sense of self-worth from our uh, outputs and, you know, then navigating workplaces and relationships and society where not everyone's on the same page as us. So how did you go about and how, I suppose, do you go about unlearning that and, uh, you know, bringing yourself back to that sense of values alignment over and over again? The way I went about this was, I mean, I'm a, so I'm a researcher, my background's in academia and um, I love a research project for better or for worse. So in 2018, like as I was navigating my you know, learning how to live with chronic pain and what would become chronic illness, I literally was like, I'm going to teach myself like a different productivity tool or a different product or a self-development tool every week. And I'm going to blog about it for a whole year. If I can do that for a year, then I give myself permission to leave academia and to not go on the tenure track, which sounds scary and exhausting and painful, you know, and that ended up being two years. So I spent two years every single week, like researching and practicing something like setting boundaries or time blocking or, you know, spiritual bypassing, like all these different things. And like that allowed me to have both like the theory and like the praxis, like actually doing it and then publishing about it, making it like a how-to guide for people. So for me, I just had like this really, you know, like two years deep dive into develop like intentionally honing my own approach to my productivity. And that helped me to, yeah, just like learn how I wanted to set up my week that helped me learn how I wanted to develop my business that like helped me to set up like rules for myself that were Mm -hmm. backed in, they're backed in research, they're backed in science and stuff, but they're also are like, I experimented to, to get to this point for me. And I'm like, I'm so incredibly grateful. i did that (laughs) I like and I did it while I was doing the PhD also so it was like almost like I had like this I joke that I had like this like I had this side major I was doing in like slow productivity stuff that's exactly what I was going to ask whether you you kept working through your PhD at the same time do you find did you find that even in real time that was impacting the work that you were doing and the way that you were doing it I think so yeah like I was dealing with at that time, like learning how to cope with, um, I, you, I, previous to my, you know, pain and illness coming on, um, I 
was really into like spin bikes. I was really into working out in that way. And I sort of fell into like this depression afterwards. I was like, I no longer can live the life that I thought I could leave. And so using these tools, like it helped me to literally cope with Mm. like learning to live with, I had to slow down. Like I didn't, it was both like, oh, cool. This is fun. I get to learn how to like time block and be like efficient. But also I was like, this is how I can set boundaries with my advisor. So she'll understand that I need to move at a slower pace. So I was able to put the things that I was doing into practice. And also at the same time, like I was reading so much literature around productivity that I was starting to like, I think, develop it, some like critiques of the system <laughs> like right. I get it at the same time. So yes, it applied like practically to the way that I interacted with other people and with schoolwork and things like that. But also it started to like, I don't know, like radicalize me around productivity. Right. That's interesting. So what, what sort of things did you come up against that you kind of had that reaction to in the productivity sphere? Because I mean, it spans such a vast area and so many different elements of it appeal to different people for different reasons. So it's obviously not all going to be a perfect fit. Um, yeah. Where, where did you find yourself sort of rubbing up against it going, mm, I don't know about that? Over time, like the, the thing that like sort of was like a thorn in my, I don't know, thorn in my side, the thing that was like bothering me and like now, like it just continued and continued as like a lot of the books that I was reading, I was like taking what worked and leaving the rest. But a lot of it seemed like, oh, this is marketed to like business people. This is marketed to CEOs. This is marketed to people who can um, delegate to other people. So I started to develop an awareness of when efficiency was being encouraged and started to, like, I was feeling rubbed the wrong way by just the discourse around work smarter, not harder, work faster, not harder. And starting to think about like the actual accessibility of that and whether or not it gatekeeps people from working in institutions where people are doing knowledge work, like academia or gig work. So I started to notice like, Ooh, this is presented. A lot of this is presented as one size fits all. And like, I know that's not real because all of my clients and my friends and people are like telling me they are really struggling in these spaces. Yeah. And I think it's such an important thing to highlight and to talk about and acknowledge because um, I sort of found myself in a similar place with the whole minimalism sphere a few years ago, where it's like, that's, that advice works for you quite obviously, but I could list a hundred people that I know personally for whom none of that applies because their circumstances are so different to this one person who's written a book about it, you know? Um, So I think being, thinking critically about it and, um, more expansively and, and as you do with a much more community-minded focus is so important because, yes, it's wonderful to change, you know, the way that you do things if it works for you. But if these tools are so powerful, let's open them up to as many people as we possibly can. And that's what I love. I absolutely loved reading on your website about the way that you have structured your business that allows you to to help and to introduce as many people as possible with as few hurdles as possible um, to the work that you do. I think that's brilliant. So could you, if that's okay, talk a little bit about the process that you went through to create your business in line with um, your slow productivity values, but also your personal values? 
Sure, absolutely. And thank you for all those compliments. It feels great to hear. Um, I mean, I think of the work that I do as like helping people hack productivity almost. <laughs> so a lot, like I have a coaching business and I also do workshops and I do education for mainly academics. And that ranges the gamut from undergrads to professors, people who are trying to navigate this system that is um, where I personally think workaholism is really normalized and glorified. Right. Even. So the way that I've set that up is like every person that I work with, I'm trying to help them and guide them to develop a personal approach to their productivity. And many of the people who seek me out to work with me also live with chronic health issues. So that's something that's been really important to me since the beginning of doing my work. And so working with people, if it's individuals, instead of saying like, well, I'm going to like basically write you a prescription where you do like five Pomodoros and you wake up at 5 a.m., like all of that stuff. I'm like, I'm never going to just tell you to like do these things. I, I've researched it all. Like I can synthesize it and offer it, but I'm more interested in like, tell me what your life is already like, and we'll make something that fits with what you're doing. So you can still finish your PhD. So you can still, you know, like apply to that job or whatever, but like making it work on your time so that mm. you're not totally burnt out. And I think that that's really, that can be really difficult to, to do on your own, I think. And I think a lot of people, particularly people who are neurodiverse and who live with chronic illness or chronic pain, like we can think like, oh, it's a me problem. Like I'm not doing it right. I like, I have to just work through the pain. I have to just, you know, like wake up at 5am, which I think is like good for you if you do that. But like, that's not literally accessible for so many people, you know? So my values around, you know, slow living, but also just in terms of making things more accessible for folks, it like really inform how I want to synthesize and educate around how to use productivity tools mm. I think you do a phenomenal job of that so thank you um you know I think hats off to you because there is a huge amount of information and complexity that you have this way of simplifying and making accessible so and I know that is a genuinely difficult thing to do uh, and you do it very well um, so well done. Thank you. I mean, my, my, my PhD research was, I did a rhetoric and composition PhD and my PhD research was actually on the way that discourse circulates from like high level complex, like dominant discourse down through other forms of like media or journalism or things. So like what we would call like rhetorical circulation. And I think that informs my fascination with reading productivity guides or like productivity courses or things and being like hold on like mm -hmm. I know they're telling us to do this but what are they really saying like what are they really suggesting you know so I like even though I'm not in academia anymore I'm doing the independent scholarship thing it's still I'm consistently doing like a discourse and rhetorical analysis of anything that's telling us like this is the way to be the best this is the way to like live the best life and I'm like wait who How? Yeah. <laughs> For who are we talking? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That is yeah. such an important question to ask, you know, and I find myself 
having to remind myself to ask that question all the time, you know, and even when something's like a bingo moment for me, just recognizing, yes, that's, that's fine. That's great, but it's not for everyone, you know? And I think that in the slow space, particularly I've seen over the last sort of five, 10 years that I've worked in it, um, this shift towards becoming more elitist and, you know, less accessible when actually its roots are in community, they're in, uh, you know, support and, and building resilience. Uh, so I guess just taking a minute to question all of these ideas, these products, these consumables, you know, and saying, okay, wonderful if that works for you, but, you know, it's not going to be working for everyone. So what can we do to keep things open um, and community kind of oriented and, and as much as possible, keep to the roots of, of the idea of slow, you know, which, as we know, means so many different things to so many different people. Yes, I imagine like, I don't know, I was thinking today before our call about like my slow productivity Venn diagram. And I'm like, wow, that'd be so cool to like just know what other people's like Venn diagram would be. Because for me, what slow productivity means is like, I think also tied to my class privilege and my, you know, privilege of being able to work from home. Like my experience of slow living even now is like totally different than it was like six years ago when I started right. learning about it, you know? So it's, yeah, it's just, it's continually fascinating and important to, I think, be critical about. Yeah. And I think um, COVID would have added another layer or two or three of complexity to it because of what you just mentioned, you know, some people having the privilege of being able to work from home, which in some instances at least has allowed people a little bit more flexibility around what their days, what their time looks like, whereas other people it hasn't. You know, in fact, the, you know, the stress and the strain has increased tenfold, a hundredfold, um, and the, the rigidity around their work has, has probably increased a lot as well. Um, so I think, I guess I want to know to someone listening, who's like, okay, that, that's great that this kind of intentional slow productivity works for these two people who work from home. I work, um, in healthcare and I'm under the pump and, you know, my shifts are set and my protocols are set. Like, what ways would you encourage people, I guess, to start digging into the questions around slow productivity for themselves? Yeah, this is, I'm so glad you asked that because I've had this experience and like doing educational work, like just for example, workshops at like three different universities that I've worked with and like one university, like a state university with like mainly grad students. And they're like, I, I, you got it. All these things, I'm going to practice them. And then working with, uh, you know, like a local community college that's mainly for adult learners who are working full-time and then going to school in the evenings. Like when I've presented on similar content, they're like, that's great. Like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, so, and I like absolutely appreciate that. And then also working with like really incredibly busy under, I work with, do a lot of programming for undergrads who are first generation college students, who are students who are also working full-time and going to school and how to make these tools accessible for people mm. who don't, don't have that extra time to just like explore and play and like work for themselves like I do so the first thing that I would or something if I like there was one thing I could impart to people for whom they don't have as much uh agency around their own scheduling and um like well, I guess there's two things so first is thinking around personal resources like the personal resources that we use to um like that we exchange for doing actions, like 
So personal resources are like time, energy, focus, but they're also mental health. They're also physical health, like physical comfort. They're also the ability to, um, you know, like focus or have willpower. So we're expending these on the work that we're doing during the day. Like if we have a nine to five and like, are we also expending those on home tasks that we're doing at home that we don't count that are like invisible labor. So starting to think about like, oh, I have limited personal resources. Mm. Like, is it possible to like conserve certain ones for, you know, like activities I have to do at home as well. I think often we um, ignore the labors that we do outside of our like quote unquote job because they were like, well, we have to do them. But I'm like, no, those are also labors. You're also expending your, your energy. So that's one thing I definitely would want to impart to people. And then also thinking about like, just encouraging people to start if possible, like you don't have to make any changes yet, but like starting to like notice and think critically around or like, not like, you don't even have to think critically about it yet. Just start noticing, like, where are you being productive? How are you feeling about it? How are you feeling about like, oh, I worked all day. And like now at home, I'm like not thinking about my personal resources. Mm-hmm. I'm ignoring my invisible labor. So people don't, I don't think that you need to like make a big change right away. Like you don't have to buy all the best selling books and start like doing all of the tools. They, they might literally not work for you because they're maybe not written for your schedule in mind. But I think if you can start at the beginning, at beginning and just start like noticing, mm. like how you feel about your work, like what's your relationship to your work? Like, I don't know. I know this is a little bit like sort of abstract all over the place of an answer, but I think like just at the beginning, starting to notice like how do like, I have personal resources. They are valid and they're important. And like, how can I reserve some of those for at home? I don't know. So do you know what I mean? Like I I know I bopped around a lot with that, but it's like noticing, like just noticing it first. Like, and then of course I can tell you like all the what's next what's the you know like that kind of stuff but I think about it theoretically in such like an abstract zoomed out systemic thing but then like also when we zoom down Mm -hmm. to like the actual like I'm so burnt out and exhausted and like my like chronic pain and illness is flared up because I have a deadline tomorrow like what do I do about it right it's it's so complex and multi-layered in that way yeah and I think I think the way that you spoke about it is a perfect summation of that because you know we do need to do that work of noticing and of just recognizing that we are not infinite in our in terms of our energy and our health and our well-being as much as we have been brought up to believe that if only we work hard enough we will be you know we will have infinite energy and we will be able to do all the things it's simply not true and it's less true for some people as well particularly if you add in chronic illness pain uh you know obstacles to learning and access and everything else there are things that are more and less true for people Uh, but I think that the way that you spoke about it is um, a really great kind of personification of what it looks like because you can spend all your time thinking about it but at some point you will hit that moment of exhaustion or burnout or overwhelm you're like I just need to do something just give me something (laughs) some tiny step forward um, that is practical and actionable do you have a um, a suggestion or, you know, suggestions for people listening that can be that tiny step forward um, for those days where they're like, I actually need something to shift even just a little bit? 
okay, I have like a medium step forward. So I'm trying to like walk it back and have, have the actual tiny step forward. Well, I'll give you my, I'll give you my medium step forward. Like this is maybe like a multi-step thing, but something that really blew my mind when I was starting to do my productivity research or a research, do you know the author, Sarah Knight? She's written like the life-changing magic of not giving a yeah. F and stuff like that. Okay. So anyway, she has this thing called the must do method. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. This, I'm sure that other people have similar things with similar names, but this blew my freaking mind. So the must do method approach is instead of working with a to-do list, which is by its very nature, just bottomless, mm-hmm. um, we shift our approach and we take our to-do list and you like schedule it based on the priority. So, uh, and priority is deadline. Priority is like most important to you personally. So if my, if my to-do list says like, laundry and I'm like I worked all day but I have to do the freaking laundry now like the must do approach is like no dude like truly when do you need to do it and in doing that looking at that I could say actually I'm fine I'll do it Friday right I don't have to do it today right so the must do approach is a way the purpose for this is to shift it so that you can stop being productive at a certain point you don't need to chip off the entire to-do list Mm -hmm. because you're intentionally scheduling things for a different day the day at which you have to do them like trust that like future Kate is going to do this however I understand if your to-do list has like 3,000 things on it that's difficult you know but this this is the must-do method I love is like because I think it's actionable. It does allow you to be like, no, I don't have to do that thing today. I'm going to rest instead. Mm -hmm. And also for me, it helped me to just like literally change my relationship with my productivity and be more comfortable stopping work earlier in the day. Like I didn't have to hunt down more things to do. I could be like, no, dude, I'll do them tomorrow. I'll do them next week. It'll be fine. So the must do approach um, is that I think is like, has the most like bang for your buck. Mm. you know, with, with approaching your to-do list and productivity. Have you done anything like that before with your approach to stuff? So the way I structure my week, um, Ben and I sit down and we have like a whip meeting, um, Monday morning, and I will list out all the things like when he's out or he's out of action. Um, and when I'm out or out of action and anything the kids have got on. And then I actually make a list of things that need to be actioned throughout the week, interviews, whatever. Um, and I tend to assign rough days to those things at the beginning of the week, knowing then that I've put that head work into it and I don't need to refresh every morning, but then each morning I get up and I write a list of things to do. It's only three. I only have three every day and I won't put more things on that list until I've moved through those things. And sometimes not even then. So, you know, if I do my three things by 11 a.m., and I've got other things that I would like to do around home or, you know, I'm having a really kind of off day health wise. It's okay. You know, it kind of gives me the sense that yes, I've made progress towards the things that need doing. Um, but I'm also not going to like continue to self-flagellate over this like productivity ideal because some days the reality is I'm really productive and efficient for like three hours. And beyond that, it's sort of like, it's a bust, you know, (laughs) Um, yes. so I could, I could sit at my desk for eight hours and get very little else done of any kind of worth or value. Um, so I'm trying to play around with that this year and allow myself the, the space to kind of let those boundaries of, of what desk work looks like 
evaporate a little bit because I'm playing around with some creative projects and things like that. So allowing myself the space to spend in that sort of area as well. That sounds in line. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like must do to me. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, it just takes the pressure off of, as you said, feeling the need to look around and constantly be more productive, which I think is the model that we've grown up with of, you know, how to be an upstanding member of society is to constantly be doing. Uh, so I'm curious to know what um, your relationship with rest is personally, you know, as someone who, who does live with a chronic illness, how do you view rest for yourself? Um, and how do you, or do you have, find any tension between, you know, the need to rest and the perceived need to do constantly? When I first developed chronic health stuff in 2017, which for me was like incredibly severe back pain, and then what would later develop into fatigue and a form of Borrelia that's basically Lyme disease. And um, so with that, I get like flares, I get brain fog, I get, you know, all of the, that stuff. Um, so f- like, I didn't have a choice. I had to rest like, and got like really thrown deep into the rest lake. I was like, you literally don't have a choice. You have to rest. And so that was incredibly uncomfortable for me then, because I had always been like attributed my worth to my work. I was always like a big fish in a small pond, always winning all the awards, always getting into the programs, you know? So since like that, I think just was like, uh, what is it like when people are like afraid of spiders and they make people be around spiders? <laughs> Do you know oh, what I mean? yeah. like exposure therapy? <laughs> yes. I got, I got like exposure therapy to rest, you know? <laughs> Cause I like, and I was like so grumpy about it, you know? And since then I like have set more boundaries around my availability, around my work time. Um, and I think like, you know, like I live with my partner, like I have their income along with my income, like that allows me to, I run my own business. I set my own rates, you know, like that allows me to have more space and time mm-hmm. to rest now. So I've set myself up. I have the ability to rest. I still struggle with it sometimes. <laughs> and I have to set actual rules. Like you cannot get to your desk before 9am. You have to stop working at 4pm. You know, you can't read anything that's like a work type of book at night, you know, like these rules that are like kind of strict, but I, it's because I think I'm still unlearning just like this obsession with work. And this mm. obsession. I think that there's like a cultural interest in rest right now. And I think that this is like an excellent political radical thing. Do you know, have you seen the nap ministry by yes. Trisha Hersey? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like Trisha Hersey's doing phenomenal work around like reclaiming rest and like thinking of rest as like even like a reparations act for black people and like it's like I'm like so stoked she has two books coming out and I'm like ugh, I want all of it (laughs) you know so I see some people like doing brilliant work of saying like absolutely everyone like and like particularly marginalized folks should should definitely be resting I struggle with it a little bit because I'm like still I'm learning just Mm. like my like fascination with work. And I think this is like complicated as well. Cause like I I do independent scholarship and right. I'm like, it's not like I have like a nine to five where I like clock in and clock out. It's like, instead I'm like always thinking about like 
my book proposal or my like a blog post or like a, like a client, you know? So I'm not, I want to be able to, I want to like proudly walk my talk of like teaching people to practice low productivity. I, however, I'm still working on it. So my, my relationship with rest is like, I have all the, I've set myself up to be able to rest. I just have to like continually allow myself to be comfortable doing it. Yeah. And I, I completely understand. Um, and I think it's an interesting point to make about being self-employed, um, and being self-employed in the kind of role that you are. Um, there are absolute pros, many, many pros in that you can set your hours, you can develop those boundaries. Um, and it's on only on you to keep honoring them and defending them. But the, uh, the flip side is that the work is all consuming, you know, in that you can, and probably do spend time downtime off time weekends holidays with at least part of your brain still there you know and I think a that's um normal like (laughs) I get it I'm exactly the same um but it's also just something I think worth reflecting on when when people are looking at ways to change their relationship with work and they think that self-employment is the kind of golden egg it certainly can be, and it depends what you're hoping to achieve, but it can also be all consuming, you know, in different ways. So, yeah, I just feel like that's an important thing to mention because it, particularly, you know, on this podcast, in all these sorts of areas, Instagram and um, the slow living space, it's almost always set up that the end goal should be self-employment. It should be, you know, being able to run your own race when in fact, for some people, it's more about, as you said, developing ways to work with your personal resources within the job or the role or the career that you already have yeah and it felt like for me like pursuing my own like pursuing starting a business I was like I can't I mean like I'm like I gotta figure out how to not work 40 hours a week because I physically can't do it you know like and like navigating hacking that system and being like how can I do that and I think like I have a PhD that enables me to like charge more you know for like better or worse but like to be completely honest like my experience in academia like gives me access to work with universities who will pay me more and, and that allows me to work less you know yeah. work less quote unquote but I don't know like talking about this with you is like making me think as well about like something I've been noodling on and I'm like I haven't quite cracked the egg of this one I'm like mixing all these metaphors, but whatever. <laughs> I like it. It sounds delicious. I, I also have an MFA in creative writing. I'm making use of that right now. But I'm like, so I'm thinking about like, um, thinking about like, oh, I'm struggling to rest. This is a me problem. Or like, oh, I'm a workaholic. This is a me problem. And I've been shifting my thinking around what, what it means to do that because I, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm a workaholic because I'm also a recovering alcoholic. And I'm just like addicted to things and don't know when to stop. Like maybe that's one thing. And like, and like I can not, I can choose to abstain from alcohol, but I can't choose to abstain from work. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it's because I'm an alcoholic. Maybe it's because of my like trauma history and how I like always sought out gold stars from external support. You know, like Mm -hmm. maybe it's because, you know, I blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's like, I often am like, oh, my workaholism is like a me problem. How can I fix myself? And like, I'm, I'm thinking like, oh man, it's like, that's, I think can be dangerous for me. And I, 
uh, would be so curious to hear what others think about this as well, because I'm like, we are working like the system of academia, like in my PhD, like doing all the bare minimum, like doing my comprehensive exams, whatever, like it would get you your degree, but it wasn't the kind of labor that would get me a job. Like I would have to do publications. I would have to do conference stuff. I would have to do all this additional stuff to find actual success. So like when I think about this, like, oh, I'm not doing enough. It's like, I don't know. I want, I, I hope that people are able to think about that critically. And mm. I recently read an article in Gawker by Amelia Horgan, who wrote Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism. And she has a critique of Anne Helen Peterson's new book, Out of Office, and says that, you know, Peterson keeps using this idea of intentional, you know, like Horgan had as a critique, and I like Horgan's work, and I like Peterson's work, but Horgan has a critique, like, when we say, like, intentional productivity, intentional practices, we're saying, like, oh, like, what is my emotional relationship to this thing? What, like, you know, personal goal am I going to set around it? But if you're working in, like, a nine-to-five or, Mm -hmm. like, an exploitative labor situation like your intention is not going to like right you far you know so it's like recently my mind has just been like swirling with like these concepts of like whoa is all of this like stuff that I'm personally trying to shift and blame myself around like how is that helping me to navigate this system and Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult and complex and like maybe it's like meant to be difficult and complex it's hard to get out of you know but I right. like <laughs> I don't yeah. know anyways I could talk about this for like ever and ever about it but what is your thought about this idea of like the, the onus on the individual to change our relationship yeah I think it's really um it's such an important question to spend some time thinking about because much like you I find myself blaming myself for where I end up you know um and of course I have a lot of agency in comparison to a lot of other people. I have the freedom of choice in comparison to a lot of other people. So um, yes, I make choices and choices have consequences. I get that. Um, However, I think that much the same as like the personal carbon footprint sort of um, argument, you know, it's become a real personal thing. Like what are you as an individual doing to shift the needle on climate change? You know, so what are you doing? How many trees have you planted? Who's your... Um, you know, where do you buy your groceries, all that kind of stuff. No one, when we're talking about personal responsibility, no one's talking about the enormous industries that are actually contributing 99% of, you know, carbon emissions. So if we shift the in the system, you know, shifts the focus to us as individuals, we spend all of our time feeling guilty about what we are are not doing and very little time focusing on the people who are making the decisions that actually have the huge impact. And I think, I think it's much the same in terms of, you know, work. And if we're all spending our time kind of digging into our, our, our choices, our patterns, thinking about what we could improve on, uh, we're not really questioning the work, like we're not, we're not questioning the system. So I think that um, by all means, you know, take agency, take control of the things that we can, but don't lose sight of the fact that we're in this system. And this system, as you said, is complex and confusing, probably on purpose, because that makes it really hard to extricate yourself from. I think that's such an excellent comparison to that to what I'm talking about here. I think it's so spot on. And I think it's why like there is some awesome, I'm sorry, I'm being an academic and just like citing lots of people right now, but no, it's there's fantastic. Like, 
So like, there's like some awesome work that's coming out right now and research around this stuff. And like, for example, like Dr. Devin Price, they have a book, Laziness Does Not Exist, right? And like, which maybe you've seen. So like, just this idea of like, this idea that we have been like told that we are quote unquote lazy is part of this systemic, you know, thing that is trying to help us tie our productivity to our work or like Sarah Jaffe's work won't love you back, you know, Mm -hmm. like thinking about like, how do we say like, oh, we love our work, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, right. So like, I think there's awesome scholarship coming out right now. And there's, there's been things coming out, like there's been things for decades, people have been talking about this stuff. But I do like the fact that right now people are starting to question and um, not just take for granted the way that we like, work as a culture. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I think that that is a good sign. Um, I think like, that's a, f- a good, like first step with changing the way that we have like personal productivity practices mm-hmm. that affect our lived experience. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's going to be fascinating the next little while to see where that goes, because here in Australia, the, the tension between, you know, business bodies and individual employees is very real as there is pressure to get people back in offices, pressure to, you know, fill the CBD again. And there's people who have experienced a different way of working over the last couple of years, um, you know, intentionally or otherwise. (laughs) And it's just really interesting to see where the disconnect is now, you know, Um, because two years is a long time. It, It, we've, we've forged new pathways. We've created new ways of being and working, uh, you know, from home or around family or, uh, you know, in a whole different sort of set of circumstances. So there seems like there's a sense of almost desperation from the old guard that I sense. And it makes me a bit excited to see (laughs) where that's going to lead, you know? Um, And I think that going back to, you know, our conversation around, viewing yourself as someone who is part of that system, but also recognizing that we do have agency, a certain amount of agency is um, a really exciting place to be in this sort of greater shuffle. And, you know, who knows what it's going to look like, but. um, Yeah. I think it's like a really, like, for me, at least it's like a very recursive practice where I like, like set all of like my like wonderful intentions you know like and my like like my excellent goals and my boundaries around my labor and then I like follow those I feel very like nourished and rested Mm -hmm. and then I like fall off that wagon like and then I like acknowledge it and I try again you know like it's a continual practice as Mm -hmm. it has been for me for years but no I'm like really I'm like fascinated like thinking about the great resignation and like you know like like I read an article the other day about how like how many businesses have like personal businesses have been started, you know, yes. like, I don't want to just be like doomsday about it. I could definitely be a, like a, you know, critic of, around a lot of stuff, but I, I'm very excited to see people shifting their relationship with mm. their work and their relationship with their productivity and their availability to do that. And again, a thing that like requires a lot of privilege and accessibility in order to do that. But I don't know, I want to be hopeful and not just like, like academic critic of this stuff yeah I don't know what do you you think I think hope's really important and I also think that people who are in a position um, to have these conversations and uh, it's important that we do because there are so many people in situations where it is simply not relevant at the moment but the more conversations that are had the more cogs that are you know 
greased a little bit every time um the more we're going to see commentary shift you know and i don't know if it's just because of the content i consume but i've i feel like there has been a shift in the conversation over the last six to 12 months where even just phrases like living wage and exploitation are becoming more and more prevalent uh and that i think is a a real positive because nothing is going to change if it stays in the dark you know nothing is going to change if the people who are being exploited who are not being paid a living wage aren't given a voice or aren't given space so I think the more that we see that um, and the more that we listen and learn and recognize that our experience is, is not the same as other people but at the same time um, nourishing ourselves this is where I come up against the tension over and over again I but I genuinely believe that nourishing ourselves and taking care of ourselves and ensuring that we are able to then step out into our work and into the world full and fueled and ready to have, you know, the conversations and do the work is an important part of that, you know, because if we're burnt out, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good our intentions are if we don't have the capacity to fulfill, you know, our role in whatever way that that looks yes I totally I hear you on this and I I feel like I'm like sometimes I forget I have a chronic illness because I have like when my treatment plan's working really well I like I'm like this is great I don't have pain I'm not yes. tired I don't have brain fog and then like recently a few weeks ago I had a flare and I was like oh my god I forgot I forgot that I like when I push myself too hard that like I'm or like whatever maybe that then there's again like I push myself too hard you know taking that like personal responsibility but like when I have a flare regardless of what causes it I'm reminded of like oh my gosh I need to just lay on the freaking couch for half a day I have to cancel my meetings I have to like do all of you know like this intentional care and I can forget about that sometimes when I'm like you know my chronic health stuff is like in line you know it's yeah it's gosh it's so I think nourishing is incredibly important Mm. and I think I like I have set up so many systems that do enable me to like do that nourishing that like keep my like illness you know in check right now um and I think I forget about it (laughs) I like forget it just becomes like the norm for me so yeah it's like I forget that it's like even like a real intentional action that I'm choosing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it I just know. becomes like normalized and I forget and I don't quite, I don't know. Cause when I, I, I have worked really hard to set up a system that like makes it so my flares are like, you know, a few times a year instead yeah. of like once every two weeks. Yeah. No, it's very much my experience sort of as I'm starting to a understand the chronic illnesses that I live with and B understand um, that cyclical nature that you speak of, you know, things are great. I must've been imagining how terrible I felt. And then, you know, something changes big week, whatever. And I find myself collapsed on the lounge on a Saturday and I'm like, Oh no, I wasn't imagining. (laughs) I was just doing the things that I needed to, in order to function well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a trip. That's for sure. (laughs) It's a trip. And I'm like, when I was first navigating living with chronic health stuff. And also I didn't have a diagnosis for a few Mm -hmm. years. Like I like, and this is so many, I think this is the actual norm for people who have chronic health issues is it takes us years to get diagnoses. So like, I didn't have a diagnosis. I just had like all of these freak, like horrible symptoms for years. And I found a lot of support within the chronic illness community. Like I joined like message boards and like, Mm. I didn't have in my like friend circle, like I didn't have friends who had chronic health issues my partner 
was amazing. They had dated someone who had chronic health stuff before. So they yeah. like already came to me being a really good support, you know, but anyway, like that finding that community of people to talk to really was like life-saving to me mm. at that time when I was like, didn't know how to function and felt like the weirdest, oddest person out who like had all these special needs, but didn't have any like disability accommodations. Right. And it, it yeah. was, it sucked. And I'm like, totally, my heart goes out to everyone who experiences that. It's so messed up, but yeah. And it's, I don't know. I mean, that makes me think too, around like the work that I do, like with educating people, like many people that I work with one-on-one live with chronic health stuff. And I am like, let's help you like live the best quality of life and still achieve your goals. However, I love when I do like group education projects and it's like professors and students are there. And I'm like, now I know the students, the professors heard me talk to you about how it's necessary to like preserve your personal resources and how personal productivity is not just your schoolwork. So I'm like, my hope is that like through this education, not just mine, but like through education around this, like we're supporting one another and not just Mm, ourselves. mm -hmm. It's not just like, what do I need to get through the day, but rather like, how can I support my colleague and like, think about their particular access needs? Like, like we'll end the meeting at five instead of going till eight or something like that, you know? So like, I hope that there's also this way that we are like nourishing and protecting and supporting our own experience of labor and productivity and also like doing that for other people too mm. and do you I th- know what I mean I do and I think that um that's another way that we can begin to see how our choices can shift the needle in a more systemic kind of sense by opening up that conversation between professors and students you know by having that conversation around boundaries in the workplace by you know being the person who is feels nourished enough to go there on behalf of the people who you work with who are not at this point, you know, and I think that that is one of the biggest powers that we have. We we can't individually change the system, but we can um, empower ourselves by, you know, care and um, nourishing ourselves in whatever way that looks to then turn around and use the excess that we have created to, you know, open doors and to open conversations for people. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about chronic illness and not being able to get a diagnosis, it took me back to it. That's another analogy, I think, for the system being broken and for, for you as a patient thinking this is a me problem. Like, what am I doing wrong? Am I, am I making this up? No, I'm not making it up, but am I doing a poor job of communicating it? You know, what should I be doing in order to advocate for myself better? Meanwhile, you walk into the system that has a default of not believing you you know, and you kind of run yourself in circles and run yourself into the ground trying to prove what you're saying is true. <laughs> Whereas you flip that system on its head and it's like the default is I believe you, let's work together. Can you imagine the pain that would just no longer apply to people who walk yes. into that system? Oh my gosh, it's a, it's a, like I remember at one point I was seeing, I had seen like 12 providers within like two months. It was mm-hmm. ridiculous. It also took up all my time, all my money. Yes. All my, I spent thousands of dollars trying to get a diagnosis. Yes. And like, but I, 
again, this also makes me think of something that Devin Price, who wrote Laziness Does Not Exist, they've been writing on their Instagram, which is like really fun to follow, but they've been talking and on their medium, writing on medium around like self-diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, like, and like that being a valid thing, like specifically around like autism and around like neurodiversity. But so like, that's a really fascinating thing. Like, however, for me, I was like, I really need that diagnosis because I need someone to like prescribe me the right physical therapist to like give me the right, you know, like medicine to take. And like, but I I also remember being like, is this all in my head? Right. Which was ridiculous because I had such incredibly severe pain that I like couldn't sit, you know? But I also remember being like, did I make all of this up? Uh Like it was, it messed with my head, you know, for years until I found a Lyme literate doctor who was like, girl, you have Lyme disease. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's do this. It was also like Lyme disease is chronic. And I was like, thank you. You know, but before that I literally had like my partner and I joke around about this because I had a doctor who was like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You are constipated, however. And I was like, yes. And like, so what? I might be constipated. What's wrong with my freaking body? You know, but it was just so that's a joke at our house where it's like, oh, maybe you're constipated. But it does, like it. Speaking from my experience, it does your. It really does a number on your head. You know, I have spent. I have journals full of like angst because I'm like, what is wrong with me? And like, is it is it something in my head? Is it something physical? Is it a combination of both? Is it you know a result of childhood stuff that has now kind of become physical? Like, and and not until you find a doctor who's like, okay, I believe you. Um, you know, and that was because I was fortunate enough to be able to afford to see multiple doctors. And I had the time and the flexibility in my schedule to see multiple doctors. And I had the support of a partner who's like, we're not stopping until we find the right doctor. You know, I've spent so long, so many hours over the last couple of years, just thinking about people who are not in that situation, who cannot Mm -hmm. take that time away from work or family or other commitments. Um, So I think, yeah, it is another example of a system that is set up for Mm -hmm. the success of certain people. Um, but it's mostly set up for the profit of an even smaller group of people, you know, at the expense of the mental health as much as the physical health of a huge number of us. Like, I don't know that I would have finished my PhD had I not had a dissertation advisor who was like incredibly, like she understood it. She also had experiences with pelvic floor pain and like totally supported me. She totally supported my plan not to go on the market and like the job market to be tenure track. And like, I don't know that I would have finished it if I didn't have like a the person who was like my who would say if I like finished or didn't finish you know like who was on my side but I remember like not even being able to like go to like meetings because I was like oh I have this big butt pillow I have to sit on I'm like humiliated to bring it Mm -hmm. when I knew I shouldn't be humiliated I would have like defended anyone else to like sit on any to use any kind of accommodation however for me I was like I honestly don't think I can sit for an hour, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it sucked. Mm -hmm. It really sucked. I'm like grateful that I got to the place that I'm at now. And like, I had access to be able to do that, but like, like, I don't, I don't know. Like I had an awesome, like few people in a team who helped me with it and like random people on like a, like online forum who live with chronic health stuff who were like, I remember once I posted a picture on Instagram on my private Instagram, which no one will ever be able to find. That was like a picture of like this butt pillow I would sit on in the bath. And like someone commented something like, 
stupid on it and I complained on this like message board and like all these sweet women went on to my post and were like I love your pillow where'd you get it was like it seems like small but at the time it was like made me feel like I mattered when I didn't feel like I did you know so yeah the chronic illness support community is magical Mm -hmm. right now because it I think that there's not there unfortunately there's not a lot of I, I, in my experience, there wasn't a lot of support in academia outside of like accommodations. And even there, then they weren't always helpful. It's like those, like the people who like get it and were like good supporters helped mm. get me through. Which is sort of another example of what we've kind of the thread that has woven through our whole conversation that, um, you know, to take your understanding of a struggle um, and then to be well cared for enough in yourself to then be able to support someone else is so important. And it genuinely is how we make change. And it might be a tiny change. It might be, you know, commenting on someone's Instagram photo, but to you, it mattered and you remember it and you, your face lit up when you were just talking about it, you know? Um, So I don't think we can underestimate how important any of those tiny little shifts, any of those ways that we can give, any of those ways that we can crack the door open or shift the boundary by 10 minutes for someone, they all matter, you know, and I think, I think it's just a really good reminder for me um, and hopefully people listening as well, that caring for yourself is also an act of expanding that into your circles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to ask one more thing before we finish, um, if that's okay. Yeah, please. I'm really curious about creativity. That's sort of my guiding idea of the year is to create. And I know that you have an MFA in creative writing. Um, And I've found myself this year being quite strong in the boundaries that I create around my work in order to allow myself to dabble, like I said, in these creative kind of sandboxes um what is your experience of creativity as a practice and creating space in order to play with it oh I love this you know I had like um actually had like a like what how to water watercolor one-on-one class like scheduled for me right before COVID and then it like hit and I never followed up on it but like for me the things that light me up with creativity are like watercoloring, which like I watercolored a beautiful blue jay and we put it on our fridge. <laughs> and like it's, we, we see it all the time. It makes me really proud. And um, creativity for me also is like, uh, like with like collaging and making collages and like that sort of like paper crafts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But for me, creativity is like, it's, it's curious because it does like, it's like woven in with my work as well, you know, like with writing, like I'm, I've been like really like diving into this proposal I'm working on. And it's like, so fun. It's so playful. I'm like being playful with my metaphor, you know? So like, for me, like, even though that is like a work thing, I'm like really like loving Mm. writing. So I, I do think it would serve me to like intentionally there's the intentionally, but like to, to be like, this is the time when I turn off all my electronics and like paint, you know, like, I think like that would serve me, but I also think that I'm like 
the creative like discovery and playfulness like maybe it's more playfulness for me like with doing yoga or you know with my writing you know Mm -hmm. like that is like where I'm tapping into that creativity through like being playful and not being like oh this has to be perfect right like when I'm right when I'm writing and just enjoying it instead of being like where am I going to publish this? Who, what blog post? you know, what am I going to, what's the exchange value for this creativity when I can instead just be like, Ooh, this is fun. You know, like that is, that is like where I'm at right now with creativity. And it's like, it feels really good to be in touch with that. It's, I mean, I'm exactly the same. Um, and I think it's the idea of playfulness is probably really an accurate one um because it's not results oriented at this stage and regardless of what it is like I just started a pottery class um and to me it's just the process you know I'm enjoying getting to understand the sense of what it feels like when I do this to the clay and when I do that no if I do that it just explodes and you know there's no output there's no pressure there's no productivity necessarily attached to it um and I think that that can come in work you know air quotes work but it can also come in in parenting and cooking and you know anything we can any kind of I think most things can be an act of creativity if we allow ourselves to look at it through the lens of play yeah my other creative thing it's like I am very into doing my nails so did you do that I did I'm holding up my nails to the zoom right now so these are like little hearts and stuff so that is another like really fun creative thing for me is like I'm very into doing manicures and then I like post stories on like my work Instagram and stuff but that is like this is a really good painting your own like fun little manicures is a good practice in letting go of perfection right like when I I have to use my left hand to paint the right one I'm like not perfect but that's okay so I'm sure it's good, it's good for my like mental health as well as like like that's really like a very fun playful thing for me absolutely I am very impressed can I just say Thank because you. I can't even do just like a not like no no little pictures just painting my nails is a disaster so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a wonderful place to wrap up a wonderful conversation Kate it has been such a delight thank you so much for your time and for sharing so openly and um thoughtfully too Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Yeah, this is like a really excellent full circle experience for me too, because when I first was like, when I first, uh, I've written about this online, but like when I first had my chronic pain and illness hit, I couldn't work out. So I was like listening to podcasts and I discovered your podcast and also Let It Be, the one that you did with Kelly Exeter. And like, so like, just like consumed it. So like, that was like my like first, like, hey dude do you know what boundaries are you can have boundaries and me being like oh my god so like that was just so it's very full circle for me so thank you for like being in my ears for the last however many years oh you're so welcome what a what a that's just made my day thank you you've given me goosebumps 